One of the books from my studio came out a couple of years ago because research on a very difficult and sensitive topic. And we thought if we got four or 500 people in the sample, it'd be amazing. He got almost 5,000. And so the book was an instant runaway hit because the conclusions he was able to draw were so rich and profound and altering to what was out there. Write the world-changing book that will help grow your personal brand and your business as it makes the world a better place. Welcome to the Author's Corner, hosted by Robin Colucci. Every episode, we bring you some of the most successful authors, as well as other industry experts, to share some inspiration, motivation, tactical strategy, and fun. We'll also talk about the challenges and trends in the publishing industry. Don't get stuck in the idea phase. Join the Author's Corner today. Start writing the book you've dreamed about. Hello, and welcome to the Author's Corner. I'm your host, Robin Colucci, and today... I'm happy to introduce to you my guest, Ron Carucci. Ron is co-founder and managing partner at Navalent, working with CEOs and executives pursuing transformational change for their organizations, leaders, and industries. He has a 30-year track record helping executives tackle challenges of strategy, organization, and leadership. From startups to Fortune 10s, hit nonprofits to heads of state, turnarounds to new markets and strategies, overhauling leadership and culture to redesigning for growth. He has helped organizations articulate strategies that lead to accelerated growth and design organizations that can execute those strategies. Ron has worked in more than 25 countries on four continents. He is the author of nine books, including the Amazon number one bestseller, Rising to Power, and the recently released, To Be Honest, Lead with the Power of Truth, Justice, and Purpose. Ron is a popular contributor to the Harvard Business Review, where Navalent's work on leadership was named one of 2016's management ideas that mattered most. He's also a regular contributor to Forbes and a two-time TEDx speaker. His work has been featured in Fortune, CEO Magazine, Inc., Business Insider, MSNBC, Business Week, and Fast Company, Smart Business, and Thought Leaders. Now, today, Ron is here with us to talk about something that we haven't talked about yet, on the author's corner. And that is the importance of research, including real, credible research in your book. And he talks about some interesting ways that he did his own original research for his books. And we also talk about ways to include research that you can acquire in other ways besides conducting your own original study. But this is such a vital component of writing a book that will have a shelf life, a long shelf life, that will also make an impact in the present day. Because it's not enough for an author to just write what they already believe that they know that they know. In my opinion, writing a book should be a journey of exploration and discovery. And a successful book, the first and most important sign of a successful book is that writing it forced the author to grow. And Ron gives us 
some very concrete ideas around the various ways that that can show up and that you can create that for yourself in your own author journey. Enjoy. So, Ron, welcome to the Author's Corner. Robin, how are you? Great to have be here with you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. And before our interview, we were starting to talk a little bit about your path to publishing and how you're an important voice in the business space. You've been published in a lot of business magazines as well as written several books. So let's just dive right in and just share with us a little bit about when you first did your first book, what was the decision point, if you will, when you decided to go for the book deal? And give us a little bit of background. What Gosh, that, was. Well, that was. So I'm nine in now. That was about <laughs> 20 something years ago. You know, Robin, writing has always been a really important way I learn. By nature, I'm an introvert. And so I kind of spend a lot of time thinking probably too much. But more especially when I interact with my clients and there are questions or conundrums or dilemmas that I don't seem to have an answer for and the available evidence or answers are unsatisfying, I tend to want to go hunt and learn more. My second book was my first commercial book. My first book was an industry book for the energy industry on culture change. But my second book, written with my mentor, she took it on with me, was a research project into my own industry, consulting, at a time when our industry was appropriately under siege, being told, you know, you're demons, you're evil, you're... Oh, right. And back in the early consulting, is that in consulting demons, witch doctors, all the books throwing darts at us, which we earned. So I thought, okay, fair enough, but people are still paying us and they still believe us to be helpful in some way. What's that about? If you peel away all the misguided motivations and greed and whatever that the industry has barnacled, what would be the value? And so we began to do a large research product, both primary and secondary sources to say, okay, clients, what does it you find valuable about outside advice? And if we clear all the way the clutter and all the things that irritate you about the witch doctors and the demons, what would that be? And so that was the birth of the first book called The Value Creating Consultant. And based on you know multiple years of research and interviews and diagnostic work on how does that relationship form and what makes it and keeps it valuable. Mm. And that just sort of led to a series of other books around, okay, well, that's what people find value about it. How does that relationship form? How does the relationship between a consultant and a client become transformative? And that was the next book. So it just sort of led to a series of unanswered questions. The more answers you have, the more questions you have. Yeah. And to pick up on that, because you said you did extensive research And this is something we have yet to really talk about on the Author's Corner, but I think it's very, very important because there's a lot of hand-wavy, a lot of hand-wavy things showing up in books like, oh, well, you know, it's like that. Or, oh yeah, that always happens. Or this works all the time. This worked for me, so it'll work for you. And it's very almost like, yeah, yeah, whatever. But really a book is supposed to be an authority piece and we're supposed to be speaking from authority, which is there's a little connotation of it maybe has some factual basis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, truth. What's that? Who <laughs> needs truth? For our listeners, we're both doing this like coffee talk hand thing. All right. So, <laughs> but yeah, talk to me a little bit about your observations and you know why you think it's so important. And then we'll get into maybe a little bit of some of the ways you've done it. Well, not to be sort of throw darts, but 
Yeah. You and I both know. Not naming names. Yeah. <laughs> literally with close to 500,000 books in the business genre being published every year, mm. right? Who's reading them all? And we all know the stats. The average one sells about 300 copies. You know, if you sell 3,000, that's you're already at 1%. But so many of them are vanity books, right? There's the, the executive who wanted to sort of have a name out there. I want to join the speaker circuit. I have wisdom. People tell me I have wisdom to offer. My story is universal to everybody. We all have a story to tell. Yep. Tell it another way. It doesn't have to be a book. So it's frustrating because the clutter just crowds out the quality. And of course, we know that there's no correlation between the quality of your book and the size of your platform. Right. True. So that's True. a false correlation. For me, the point of being, I love your word, authority, author, authority, needs to have some basis of evidence to support the point you're trying to make more than just your observations or anecdotes or personal experiences. So some form of primary, secondary, some body of work that you studied to form the patterns you formed, to form the conclusions you formed, presumably that others have not formed. Although if you Google leadership, it seems to be other people have thought about that too. <laughs> but let's, so let's talk about research and what it's not. Mm-hmm. A crowdsourcing poll on LinkedIn, not research. <laughs> Emailing your friends, say, hey, can you tell me stories about not research? <laughs> Interesting, you know, casting the net for thoughts, but it's not research. Research is a really collecting evidence and interrogating the evidence in a way that allows you to say, I can prove this lines up to a theory. It doesn't line up to other theories. So it really is causal. And I can provide my readers some confidence in that I've backed up what I'm telling them to go try and do because I've studied it and I've looked. I think we owe that to our readers. I think we owe them the having done, if we're going to ask them to spend $30 and spend seven or eight hours with us in the form of writing, we do have at least owe them a promise that says, I want to make your time worth it. Absolutely. Yeah, that's so important. And can you give us a good example of like a discovery that you made in research that maybe contradicted what you would have assumed if you hadn't looked? Oh gosh, yeah. So my last book, we have this incredible body of evidence and research that we use to study using some really cool artificial intelligence tools. And so we have diagnostic interviews over the last 15, 20 years that we've done, and then we study them. And at the 10-year study, which was 2,700 leaders interviews, we were studying notions of power. And why is it we've known for so long that executives who rise up into broader assignments of, of leadership, about 50 to 60% of them fell in the first 18 months. So mm-hmm. a widely known statistic, not refuted. The recruiters love it because it's an annuity for them, but this carnage that we just seem to accept is okay. And it became personal for us when it became about our clients. And CEOs were saying, I'm paying you to help them. And why'd this happen? You know, devastating. We thought we'd done a good job. And so we wanted to interrogate and investigate what the heck is going on here and why is this happening? And that was my first exposure to artificial intelligence. And honest to God, it's creepy. Yeah. When you give these machines 2,700 lengthy interviews to read and analyze and tell you what it says and tell you what it means and to make statistical correlations of that data and model out predictive, it's really creepy. Beautiful, but creepy. Okay. One of the things we assume we would find in the abuse of power when we isolated that dimension, 
was that we find all the creeps, right? The people who are self-interested and immoral and whatever. That was the least evident source of abuse of power. The greatest abuse of power was the abandonment of it. The abandonment of it. Oh, yeah. Okay, that makes sense. People too afraid to use it. People setting it down and not using it at all. Yep. And that was a shocking surprise. And then we had the same response as you. Well, of course, that's what it is. The problem is it's those that abuse the power for immoral or or self-gain or self-interest or whatever that get the headlines. Right. But the vast majority of leaders running corporate America today, either to avoid looking like that or their own fear of failure or their own fear of rejection or for some other pathology, push their power away and don't embrace the incredible responsibility and privilege it is and opportunity it creates for them to have impact and agency. So that was a wide open door for us as an example of, oh, didn't see that coming. Yeah, that's incredible. And, you know, it also kind of, when you just do a small sample, right, then you're just counting on like the anecdotes or stories of a few people. And you could easily, if you just happen to get a small group of people who were abusing power, (laughs) you know, by overusing it, then you would have come to the wrong conclusion. Right. Yeah. Incredible. Incredible. So you got another good example. These are fun. (laughs) Yeah. So in this last book, we decided at 15 years with now 3,200 interviews to study with rising to power, we decided like good researchers, we'd have a hypothesis, but you know, hold it loosely in the X, Y axis kind of thinking and saying, we're trying to understand this. The great thing about artificial intelligence is that create statistical models for you to sort of say, these are factors that could be loading on each other, that could be causal. Here's what that means. And so we looked at tenure enroll, time enroll, things that would tell us failure rates. This time around, we thought, you know what? If the technology is so intelligent, let's ask it to tell us we should be asking it. Oh, okay. That's interesting. So we sort of cast in that why, did not go in with variables or hypothesize, but said, what are you reading? What do you see? What questions should we be asking you? And I don't know what we thought was going to happen. <laughs> but it could be fun or it could be useless. Right. <laughs> a waste of a lot of money. <laughs> but as it turned out, it came back with what they call drill sites, right? So here are some interesting factors, organizational issues. We were looking for systemic patterns. We weren't looking to isolate for individual behavior. We wanted to see systemic factors. And there was this body of factors around truth-telling, honesty, authenticity, you know, around and predictors of when you would know when somebody or organizationally you were going to see honest behavior, when you were going to see dishonest behavior. And we thought, oh, really? You know, I mean, who of us isn't tired of the Toronto stories and the Wells Fargo stories and the Bones (laughs) stories? If we could tell, if we could foresee that coming, if you knew what kinds of conditions could predicate people making, you know, otherwise good hearted people or decent people making those kinds of choices, that'd be helpful. Yeah. So we went back and said, okay, go drill. And sure enough, the data returned a number of interesting factors, but four really statistically significant factors that you could say would predict under these conditions, people will tell the truth, behave. And interestingly enough, it helped us define honesty in a very different way. So trustworthiness didn't, wasn't earned by not lying, but there was no inverted correlation there. Used to be the case, I'm sure 20 years ago, but now the bar is much higher. So, you know, Mm. truth-telling behavior, fairness, justice, Mm. and serving a greater good besides yourself took all three 
to sort of say, this is what honesty is, truth, justice, and purpose. Basically meaning you say the right thing, you do the right thing, and you say and do the right thing for the right reason. Right. Yeah. And so it came back and said, here are four conditions under which you could predict whether people will do the right thing, say the right thing, and behave purposefully, or they'll lie, cheat, and serve their own interests first. Okay. And so that was really fun. And when you look at them, you think, oh my gosh, they're hiding in plain sight. These are everyday nuisances, irritations in organizations we write off as part and parcel of being part of a company. And that's just how this crap goes. To all, all right, of a sudden realizing- Give me an example of this. Like what would predicate- So the, the first finding was what we called having a clear identity, being who you say you are. Hmm. So our organizations make promises. Okay. They have mission statements. They have values. They have purpose statements. Sometimes they're legitimately lived by and expected to, you know, the say-do gap is not wide often for cosmetic purposes. And when you raise them in the eyes of employees, they roll their eyes for cosmetic purposes only. Well, it turns out when the say-do gap against those promises is wide, you've now institutionalized duplicity. You've declared around here, we say one thing, but do another. Uh-huh. And that's okay. Right. When that's the case, you are three times more likely to have people lie and cheat. Because you've shown them. You've modeled it. Yeah. And the models work both ways so that when there's alignment, when people experience those behaviors, you're now three times more likely to have people be honest. Uh-huh. Yeah, that totally makes sense. So to your question about surprises, the fourth finding was the largest gap, cross-functional rivalries. So at the seams of organizations where value gets created, sales, marketing, supply chain operations, when there is cohesion there, when those seams are stitched well, when there's ways to resolve conflict when there are competing priorities or metrics that can be resolved and you have a truly cohesive single source of truth, you are six times more likely to have people be honest. Mm. But when you have a fragmented organization, when those silos prevail, when you have lots of we's and days, where there are border wars that prevail over value creation, when you fragment the organization, now you fragment the truth. And when you have dueling truths, now, my goal is no longer a single source of truth. My goal is simply make sure that you understand you're wrong and I'm right. Right. Yeah. Now you're six times more likely to have people cheat me and lie in the service of protecting my truth. I'll do whatever it is. Tribalism has set in and my tribe has to win. Uh-huh. So this goes beyond corporate is what you're saying. <laughs> hey, these are universal. So there were four. What was really fascinating, Robin, about the statistical models is that they're cumulative. Oh, okay. If you do all four of these things well, you are 16 times more likely to have people in your organization behave fairly, be honest, and serve your greater good. But if you suck at all four of them, you're 16 times more likely to find yourself in the headline of a New York Times story in your worst nightmare. Right. (laughs) Wow. Incredible. Incredible. And so where does, I mean, just for fun. And I'm sure this will entice many people to go out and get a few of your books is what I'm thinking. (laughs) But I mean, if a company does this kind of an assessment, do you assess companies for these kinds of likelihoods? And if so, like, and what's the- We have a, our diagnostics as consultants are pretty forensic. We go in and dig out deep data. Hmm. People will tell us things they won't tell their priest or their rabbis. And the way we report our diagnostics we have pretty sophisticated software that codes the data. So when we hand back to a leader, it's 80 pages of narrative of everything we heard. You don't know who said what, but we coded by thematic storyline. And we say, this is the story you are telling yourselves about your organization. And it's raw. 
Yeah. And so it, it becomes an eye-opening mirror to say, it doesn't matter that you all see the world the same way or don't. It doesn't matter that you don't like or agree with what people are saying. This is the story they have aligned their beliefs to. This is the narrative that is driving your current performance or lack of it. Mm-hmm. And so if you like the next chapter of the story to be something different, you have to face the music on what the chapter is telling you today. And so we, before we will come and say, this is what we think this data means, we make executives sit around that story for a day and a half, mm-hmm. picking out and facing each other and talking about those competing narratives and asking each other hard questions mm-hmm. and coming to terms with the story that is there that they helped create Yeah, and making sense of why it is what it is. And after the psychological bonding to the story is secure, we'll then say, okay, here's what we think it means. And mostly that's you know, 70% aligned with what they've concluded, but it's important that we're aligning to their story, not the consultants that come in with the answers. Yeah. Because that bypasses psychological ownership and says, okay, well, what's the answer, Mr. Consultant? And then you have no ownership at all. Exactly. And then they don't feel an obligation to follow through on whatever. No, the consultant said. said. Right. And we make sure that never happens. We won't tell you anything about the truth of your story to you. You can't be true to yourself to you're true about yourself. Yes. Yeah, so you got to really sit in the impact of how you've been behaving. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Brilliant. I love that. I love that. Wow. That is so cool. And so you use AI for your research. Tell me a little bit about before you had access to AI. I know the AI is very sexy, but I'm just thinking, you know, what are some of the other models that you've used to do some of your research? This time around, I have to say, was a level of writing luxury I have only dreamed about ever having. I mean, it was just extravagant in the most beautiful way. I had a phenomenal team of people because research is very important to me. Data is very important to me. Secondary sourcing is a really important part of it. I hate doing it. Mm-hmm. It's not where I want to spend my time, but I know it's important. So I hired an amazing team of RAs to join me. Who I gave this like word table to say, could you just put links in the table? And they came back and said, the grad students, right? They said, are you really wed to that being how we do this? I'm like, no, it'd be a better idea. So they set this gorgeous OneNote notebook up for me with tabs and categories and just beautiful. Uh, that was at my fingertips whenever I needed sourcing. Oh, nice. Found cases, found people. So I was busy interviewing all the... So I wanted this to be a book of heroes. I didn't want to do a book of villains. We're tired of them. We don't need to talk about them anymore. I wanted to know who the heroes were. Who are the people, organizations and leaders modeling kinds of behaviors and choices we want to emulate? that we'd be proud to follow, that we long to call them our boss. Mm. And I spent my time interviewing them nice. while they spent time constructing support data that I could put behind those stories to support the findings in our primary research. And it was this beautiful process of manufacturing the chapters along mm. the way. So you have to have supporting evidence. So whether it's, prim- whether it's interviews, whether it is a valid survey instrument where you've gotten data and collected information. I've been a research designer for a number of authors for their books. I run a book studio for first-time authors. Oh, so I didn't I, that up in your bio. It's not something I advertise a lot. Oh, okay. I started, <laughs> I started at, when I taught the grad school oh, in Seattle. I missed and <laughs> Because there were so many young grad students getting contracts and having no idea what to do. And I was tired of giving the same advice out more than once. So we created a studio where they could bring their work. It was in a how to write studio. It was a how to build a book. Because I've got a whole methodology on books are not written, they're built. You construct a book and how to do that with a disciplined set of tools and processes. And I just rented it online for a bunch of first-time authors. I tried it virtually earlier this year. And it was a lot of fun for about eight or nine authors. And so however you're going to produce the evidence, there has to be some evidence. And so I've helped people design their 
instruments and validate them. One of the books from my studio came out a couple of years ago, Runaway Bestseller, because research on a very difficult and complicated and sensitive topic. And we thought we could get, if we got four or 500 people in the sample, it'd be amazing. He got almost 5,000 people. Oh, wow. Wow. And it was on a very difficult topic. And so the book was an instant runaway hit because mm-hmm. the conclusions he was able to draw were so rich and profound and altering to what was out there. So I think evidence is really important. You have to be curious beyond your own thoughts, beyond your own praxis. Your own praxis, certainly, I think your point's very good before. Our authority counts. Mm-hmm. It's just not the end of the authority. Right. So I've done primary interviews before. I've done survey research. Certainly, I know how to find good secondary sourcing to make sure that not just that go find what I want to hear to support what I've concluded, but I want to go look at the who disagrees, who has found something different. To me, it doesn't mean my theory is less valid. It just means I'm going to be challenged. I ought to be the one saying that before someone else has to find it. Well, exactly. I think that's so important too, because if you can call out an alternate opinion and then you can even address it in your book, then it only strengthens your position versus always just looking for reinforcement. Versus or poo-pooing people that disagree with you. Yeah. And I really think too, it's like, I think that every book needs some kind of, like you said, secondary sourcing. You know, even if you're just reading other people's books, <laughs> right? But when it's all coming from you, especially in this, I mean, obviously in this nonfiction expert space, it really is, I think, then the author's hiding from maybe finding out that they don't know everything or that they're well, hiding. It's, a, it's uh, a difficult thing. Whenever writers come to my studio, I always ask them the really hard question why do you want to write a book? Mm-hmm. And they struggle to answer because I should, because I want to be a thought leader. I want, street credibility, whatever it is. And it's not that those motivations are bad, but they're vain. You have to, you know, oh, you have the other extreme of I want to change the world. Mm-hmm. Okay. Tell me how you're going to do that. But my message to all of them is write a book worthy of being written. Yes. And being read. Yes. <laughs> and has impact and put the work out there. You know, I don't know about you, Robin, but you see these ads for these workshops on how to write a book in three days. Uh, you know, do you cringe? Yes. Oh, so, more than cringe for me. I get angry. <laughs> it's, it's, it's cringeworthy. Like, what book written in three days is worth it anything? Yeah. And honestly, I feel the same way about writing a book in 30 days, which is the other, or Whatever even the, 90 days, or even 90 days. Cause I'm like, mm. if this is a sprint with a, cl- a stopwatch going, it's already a disaster, right? right? <laughs> exactly. Just don't bother. Write articles, write a blog. How many books do you hear people say? Could have been an article. Mm. Especially in the business space, I've had so many people say, you know, if they just got to the bottom line of it, this book could have been a tweet, but it's <laughs> about many of those books, which is unfortunately true. It's just sad. It's just cluttering up the space of people who really want have something they believe they want to say and have something, some substance behind it. Yeah. And I think that it's true. Like the level that you take it is really impressive. And I want our listeners to get that even if you don't go that far, there's still so much value in checking your opinions, looking for data. Maybe someone else did a really good quality study. Somebody probably did. You know, Malcolm Gladwell, in for Rise into Power, half of Rise into Power is a novel. It's fiction. I wanted to sort of people to see in the juicy, sordid, icky real life humans. And so I had to learn how to write fiction. So I went into took Dan Brown's course and took fiction writers course. This time around, I wanted to learn to tell really good big stories. So I took Malcolm's course. 
Uh-huh. Malcolm talks about the fact that whenever he gives advice to an author, he said, be prepared to just read for, for a year. Yeah. Before you can start <laughs> writing. Yeah. Which, of course, makes people cringe, you know, but I wanted the book to be published in a year. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, just check, if you're really that impatient, just check your motivations because you're setting yourself up for disappointment, much less, you know, other than people in your family re- write, reading the book and celebrating with a little party and four Amazon reviews, probably not going to get very far. And it's probably not, unless you, you're going to pay to have it printed and all you really want is a $10 business card. Yeah. Okay. That's fine. Just be honest about that. Don't try and pretend it's something else. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. One of the things, you know, that you just said something else cringeworthy, which is when I hear people say your book is just a big business card and are actually advising people, oh, don't worry about it. You just got to put it out there. It's just a big business card. And whenever I speak, this often comes up and I always ask the same question of the room. I say, okay, raise your hand if you've ever taken a business card to bed. (laughs) And of course, no one has. And then how many books do you have on your nightstand right now? And it's, you know, one, five, 10, 20. (laughs) And I mean, I think that's really what it's about too, is that, like you said, this reader is giving you their time, their attention in their most intimate spaces. People read in their most intimate spaces. They read in their favorite chair. They read in bed. They read in the bathroom. (laughs) None of these have business cards nearby. (laughs) And so it's important to honor that because they're granting you. And they're giving you access to their soul and their mind. They're opening themselves up to having their minds changed or stretched. If they're giving themselves over to your material, rend their heart. Yes. Stretch their mind. Make it hurt. Yes. And then make it thrilling. Make it both. But at the end of it, make them sorry it's over. Yes. <laughs> Isn't that the best when you finish a book and you're like, oh, I wish oh, I didn't want it to end. <laughs> Give me more pages. There must be more back here. <laughs> that really, I know that. And, and, you know, that doesn't just happen with novels too, because you're right. Like you're, when you think about even, you know, what's the experience of reading? Well, that person's voice is in your head and you're probably carrying it around with you even when you're not reading it. You know, as long as that book is open, at least then, and perhaps beyond that. Yeah, for sure. Which is such a powerful thing, and it needs to be respected. And you disrespect it when you cheapen, you know, or you overglorify your own beliefs or opinions or content at the absence of really making sure. It's stunning to me how many book authors don't test their material, don't have a reader group along the way, not tell you what you want to hear, but throw darts. Why would you wait to find out that it didn't work? (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's hard. I mean, I remember getting my very first manuscript back long before the days of track changes. Right. And it was, it looked like she'd spray painted in red. (laughs) I mean, it was, I just literally sat on the floor and cried, but I don't even know what I do here. (laughs) And I've so come to appreciate now the flip side of that. This time I intentionally hired a ruthless developmental editor. Mm-hmm. I wanted him to be a butcher. Before I would send the chapters on to my editor at the publisher, I wanted him to gut it. And he did. So this process was, you know, my researchers would be filling the, the coffers. I'd be building the chapters, passing them on to my developmental editor. He'd butcher them. I would keep coming and then he'd come back. And then I'd go through his queries and send them on to the... It was like this really interesting process. I had to stop because I just couldn't handle his edits and their edits. And so I had to slow it down because everybody was going <laughs> fast with me. 
But I found that every one of his chapters took about a glass and a half of Pinot Noir. But <laughs> when I sort of put, you know, like take a deep breath, just get through it, feel the pain, mm-hmm. embrace the pain, and realize that when it was done, and I have to agree with everything he said, but I probably agree with about 90% of it. But when it was done, I just knew how much better it was. And now when I go through the book, I can, I'm so aware of the places. It's like, just think of it as ironing a wrinkled shirt, right? Yeah. It's just iron. Yeah. And sometimes the wrinkles are deep. Yeah. Iron hotter. <laughs> but when it was done, I'm like, it's just so much better. When an editor helps you find a better version of your voice, it's not critique, right? It's, you can't personalize it. Right. And it, it's not criticism you know, as long as it's constructive, right? As long as there's, hey, this isn't really working. Or one thing that what you're describing just sounds like our book coaching process. So I'm just, that's why I'm sitting back here chuckling. But really, it's also about, you know, challenging the points that you're making and saying, hey, what about this? Or this isn't quite ringing true to me. Like maybe we need to dig deeper, actually are trying to say. Well, I find one of the biggest patterns I see in first-time book authors is these massive leaps of logic. Yeah. <laughs> From one sense, I'm like, whoa, double-click here and unpack this because you can't just make that statement, drop the hammer and move on as though they just so much take for granted all that's in their head exactly. got them there. And I'm like, you can't do that to your reader. You need to bring yeah. them along and you skipped 18 steps. You know and- what I call that? <laughs> I have a name for that. It's like, oh, you just serve your reader a glass of orange juice concentrate. <laughs> Love it. Where's the water? Let's add some water and <laughs> make this something they can actually drink <laughs> and enjoy. Touche. Touche. <laughs> yeah. Fun stuff. See, I just so happy because this is my favorite part <laughs> of working on books. Building a book is a sacred event. In our process, we break it down into conception, construction, and commercialization. Oh, I like that. Uh huh. And the hardest part for most authors to accept is that they're not serial. They're not. A, they're parallel. And that's most people do it in a serial fashion, and they get to commercialization. It's too late. Yeah, I was going to say when you said it in that order, I thought, uh oh, because we recommend you should be thinking about the commercialization before you've even written a uh, one word. They're but parallel. I said, they're, they're, they're all happening at the same time. Yeah. But they're very different bodies of work. Many leaders get stuck in one of those traps because they want to be doing one, but not the other. And yeah. so we sort of said, here's how they're parallel, but here's how they're separate. Yes. Yeah. And how to treat them differently. But most authors, especially in conception, which is where your research happens, they're not willing to be open to the fact that the book you set out to write isn't the book that needs to be written. Right. And being open to learning that maybe the book that needs to be written is a book that's different than what you thought, but better. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yes. And no matter how much clarity you think you have before you start, it will change significantly. (laughs) After you publish it, it's going to change. Right. Well, yes. (laughs) You're going to look at it and go, oh, I'm, you know, why didn't I think it's just part of a deal? That's true. But that's why you can always write another book. If you're a glutton for punishment, that's for sure. (laughs) I think people have to accept from the very beginning, by definition, writing a book is existential crisis. Mm. You are creating an existential crisis of your identity. That's just how it goes. You can't. And any one of those processes of conception, construction, or commercialization, especially commercialization, it will trigger it and rend you. And 
it's unavoidable. It doesn't matter how famous you are, how big your platform is, or how well your book does. It is a dark night of the soul to bring that part of you to the world. And you just need to get through it. Get a therapist, get a coach, get a piece of wine. That's why author carries more authority because guess what? You are transformed. You're in the crucible of transformation when you're writing that book and having the book in your hand and holding it up to the world and saying, look at me, I'm an author. That's like waving your diploma, you know, at the end at graduation, but it's just a symbol of the transformation that you went through. Right. And that's what makes you a better expert. Well, especially I think if in your book, you can show the readers your transformation. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think this was the book I think is the most vulnerable for me. This was the book that I left it all on the line and I let myself show, you know, I, I remember telling that one author in my studio who's writing about that very sensitive topic, I said, you understand, if you're going to write about this, you're going to have to reveal your own secrets. He said, yeah, I know. And then, you know, four years later, came back to me and said, you know, if you're going to write about honesty, you're going to have to talk about your own dishonesty. And just makes for a richer and more intimate experience of the book. Yeah, because when you're willing to own up to your mistakes, flaws, failings, whatever, your kinks, then you're giving the reader permission to have greater self-acceptance. And that's such a- Well, and you're asking that other reader. That's why you wrote the book. But you earn more of your right to asset of your reader, not just with authority, but with vulnerability. Yes, absolutely. I love that. Yes. Wow. That's such a great thought to punctuate this conversation. But I'm going to ask you one more question. I can't believe how the time has flown by, but I'm going to ask you one more question because this is my trademark question at the end of the interview, which is what is- the question that I did not ask that you would love to answer. The question that I was afraid you were going to ask that I didn't want to answer was, what do you love most about writing books? <laughs> oh, like, She didn't ask. Good. But now you've asked it. so Because <laughs> I don't know if I have an answer. <laughs> nothing? <laughs> no, nothing. <laughs> you know, it's so funny, Robert. I never... Only into recent years, through some coaching of my coach, I hired a coach for me five years ago to sort of take my own medicine. I never thought of myself as an author. I don't make my living that way, right? I make my living as a consultant. And so it's sort of this afterthought of, I write books, but I'm not an author. You know, I'm like, oh, I guess I own that I'm an author. And I don't know why I've had this ambivalent relationship with that word for so long. But I think the thing I love is the learning the discovery, the luxurious amount of time you have to explore something and pack it and dig in and wrestle with it. Sure, it's on behalf of future readers, but I get to short circuit their learning and more, make it a little bit less, more efficient. But the time I get to spend in the presence, especially in this case, in the presence of just some remarkable people was just sacred and thrilling. I think that was the part about this project that I just adored and was sad when it was over. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for spending some of your time with us on The Author's Corner. Thank you again, Ron. My pleasure. Thanks, Robin. Thank you for tuning in to another amazing episode of The Author's Corner. You're one step closer to writing the world-changing book you've dreamed about for years. To access today's show notes and other helpful resources, simply visit our website at theauthorscorner.com. A positive review would be appreciated. Until next time.